Hello, everyone, and welcome to Yearbook Chat with Jim. You're listening to the Wallsworth Yearbooks Podcast Network. Today, I have an extraordinary story for you, one that involves two incredible women in our journalism community. The first of these extraordinary women is Neil Mbora, a 2018 graduate of McKinney High School in McKinney, Texas. Neelam got her start in scholastic journalism in a J-1 class at McKinney, came in at lunch and other spare time to write for the yearbook her sophomore year, and then was on staff under Alyssa Berenger her junior and senior years. My second guest is Leah Waters from Heritage High School in Frisco, Texas. Leah began her journalism career at Poteet High School in Mesquite, Texas. She was a journalism major at Angelo State University and got her master's in journalism from the University of North Texas. She currently is the Texas JEA State Director and is one of the adult mentors for the students who are working with the Texas State Legislature to get a new voices law passed to help protect the press rights of all student journalists in Texas. My name is Alyssa Berenger. I advise the Lion Yearbook and our broadcast, MHS One, and our website, MainstreamNews.com. All right. When did you first meet Neelam Bora? So I actually met Neelam, um, I guess it would have been her freshman year, which was uh, the fall of 2014. That's right, fall of 2014. Um, she took Journalism One here at McKinney High, and I was one of the UIL coaches. So she was oh. like an instant writing star. and. Um, I became one of her coaches, so um, we worked together for all four years. She was in high school here. Yeah, tell me a little bit about her special gifts and talents, particularly as a writer. Well, um, the thing about Neelam is her sense of responsibility she has to whoever she's writing about. So she wants to get big stories out there. Um, she has a a keen sense of social justice. So untold stories, things like that. She wants those to be told and she wants them in the yearbook. So that was great for me. She told some incredible stories. She wrote a story about the Me Too movement and sexual harassment that printed in the yearbook. She um, did an incredible story about one of our coaches who dealt with alcoholism in her family and how that inspired her to become a coach. There was another one about uh, actually several stories about immigrants who came to McKinney and she told their stories. So just a very passionate writer um, and storyteller. And what are, what are some of the things that characterize her storytelling? Um, I would say details. She, you know, she doesn't reporting will go on for, you know, days and weeks. This isn't a one interview and done. She always interviews parents 
and friends and siblings of her subjects. So she's very persistent and good with details. Uh, just was such a fun person to have writing these stories for the yearbook because of just that passion she had to tell people's stories. Hey, you didn't have to tell her to do this. It was just, she went wherever the story took her. Well, with Neelam, it was like, she understands uh, that these stories are going to last forever and the impact that they could have. She also understands that there are people in our community that, you know, need to know that these stories are out there. And so she thought it was her responsibility to do that. And since she went to UT, she was doing the same thing. Her One of her first stories for the Daily Texan at the University of Texas was uh, how many girls they had as computer science majors. And it was kind of an abysmal number for such a large university. So she's always just cared about making the world right. And uh, that's Isn't that's that driven her. Yeah, we need more Neelums. Right. How did the need come about for a transplant? And then how did the news get out that it was needed? Well, Neelam is a very, uh, she's not a private person. Like she'll share her life story with you, but <laughs> I think she felt really odd. <laughs> like asking friends and family for, for an organ kind of thing. Yeah, sure. So she didn't really put it out there. Her family put it out there. They got, I think they got a lot of their family tested and didn't have a whole lot of luck. There was a, you know, a social media thing going around from her parents. And then, you know, I happened to mention it to some uh, Texas Association of Journalism Educators in our board group message. I mentioned it to them um, just sort of in passing. And that's how we found someone who was interested, I guess. So I was in a group message with uh, Cindy Todd and Leah and um, Margie, Margie Raper. And we're coming up with ideas for um, our scholarships that are coming up and how we can promote our scholarships. Well, I just noticed that FSPA did this really cool thing where last year's scholarship winners were making promotional videos saying, hey, I'm here at the University of Florida. You should apply for these oh. FSPA scholarships. So I, I sent that link to the board and they said, that's a great idea. Of course, Neelam won one of our scholarships last year. They said, get Neelam to do this. And I said, well, now's not a really good time. <laughs> Neelam's at home. She hasn't <laughs> been able to go back to school. So I kind of told him the story. Um, and I think Leah asked a couple of questions that night, just about what it was like. Um, but it wasn't, I think it was a few days later when she actually sent another text message asking, uh, what was Neelam's hospital? And that's when my ears kind of went up, like, why do you want to know what Neelam's hospital is? <laughs> why do you want to know, want to know what Neelam's hospital is? And so she said, well, I'm taking the test and we're going to find out if I can do this. Out of nowhere. Wow. Had she ever met Neelam before? No. Not that I know. I don't think so. Had she even, no, she had she even read her, she had, 
she didn't she didn't have anything to do with the scholarship other than being on the board. No, there's a we have an independent scholarship committee that selects all that. She didn't. Even, oh my she, goodness! She didn't know anything about it. She just saw a kid in wow. need and said, "Hey, I could probably do that." Can you believe it? <laughs> I cannot believe it. So you, I mean, it wasn't, and your plea wasn't, "Hey, can somebody out there give her a kidney?" It was just one of my kids has this need and I just wanted to share it. Yeah, I, I really just said, Neelam's not going to be able to help us promote our scholarship. That was that was the only reason I even brought it up. I mean, oh, my goodness. She, and she didn't say, hey, I, she didn't mention it. Hey, I'm thinking about doing this. She just did it. She, oh, my she goodness. She just did it. Makes you cry. It, well, I cry every time I tell the story. Um, I know. I, I, mean, I I did not go out there trying to help Neelam find a kidney. I wish I had done that in retrospect. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, I would love right. to take some kind of credit for this. I, yeah. I, the only thing I've done is I know two really incredible people and help them connect a little bit. Um, that's all I've done. Leah yeah. is completely selflessly, um, was willing to do this without much hesitation at all. In fact, at one point I said, well, Leah, what about, what if your, one of your kids needs a kidney? And she said, well, there, someone like me needs to step up if one of my kids needs a kidney. I just went, Wow. Oh my goodness. Wow. Well, so then how long did it take for the match to get made? And when was the surgery? Leah had to go through a few more rounds of tests and she may be able to tell you the chemical names for all the things they were looking for. Sure. I just kind of went, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me know when you can get, (laughs) when this is going to work out. (laughs) Um, So it was... I think February 5th was the date that uh, I, we were in the the group message with TAJE and the next week Leah told me that she was doing the tests and then March 12th, they had the surgery over spring break. Oh my goodness. It happened really quickly. And how's both their recovery going? Um, I think it's going pretty well. I've seen them both up and walking around. Um, one of the most interesting things is um, Leah is an incredible writing coach in her own right. And Neelam is trying to write the story of what's happened to her. So it's been really fun just to watch them work together because Leah has become, uh, you know, one of Neelam's mentors. Um so yes. it's just been really fun to watch them. They're so much alike. Um, you know, they their sense of humor is similar. They're passionate about a lot of the same things. Um, they're both completely selfless people. So it's just been fun to watch their relationship kind of come together.
Welcome, Leah and Neelam, to your book chat with Jim. Hi. <laughs> Thanks for making time at the start of another school year to tell your story of how and why you came together in such an incredible way to become lifelong friends, when, as I understand it, you'd never met until early this year. Yeah, that's right. And also, we've been working, we've been working on this story since last spring, and I'm excited that we all finally get to hear your incredible story together. So welcome. Thank you. Thanks, Jim. Glad you guys could be here. Well, so let me get let me get a little background from you, Neelam. Were you born and raised in McKinney? I was basically raised in McKinney. I was born in Florida, but my family moved here when I was like uh, nine months old. So yeah, I've basically been raised here my whole life. So tell me about your, your start in journalism. How did that happen? Um, it was actually an accident. Me and a friend in eighth grade, we were choosing our classes for high school, and I, we both decided to take aerobic dance to get our PE credit because we were nerds. And um, on the first day of school, the counselors called us in and said, we don't have that elective. It was a mistake. So you either have to take journalism or I don't even remember what the other class option was, but we both decided journalism was the obvious answer. So we ended up in Miss Oglesby's J1 class. And from there, both of us really, really enjoyed it. And we started doing UIL competitions and writing for the newspaper and yearbook. So then tell me a little bit about heading off to UT in the fall of last year. Yeah, I, I was very nervous. Um, as I, rem I remember thinking as soon as I got there that I have to figure out the fastest way I can join the Daily Texan because that was the most similar thing to what I'd been doing in high school for the newspaper. And Nicole Stussy, um, she also graduated from McKinney High. She was editor of the yearbook. She had already been working at the Texan for a year. So um, I, I, she kind of provided like that guidance for this is what you need to be doing as a, as a journalism major. So I remember as soon as Texan tryout uh, forms went out, I signed up immediately and they kind of made me cover this really boring event which was that the law school gives free coffee to law students every Monday. And it was something that had been going on for five years. So it wasn't news, but they wanted me to cover it. And it had to be written 15 minutes after the event, quote unquote, had started. And so I remember the day before I went down to the law school and I I already started interviewing people. I interviewed all the law students. I said, did you know they give you free coffee on Mondays? And a lot of them were like, no. And so I went, I even tried to find who was the person in charge of this. And, tr and I scheduled a quote with them. So the next day I was able to actually put together a whole story about it. And I just remember being proud of myself for that. And then they hired me as a general reporter, like a beginner reporter and um, from then on, I wrote a lot of stories that I liked. So coming from a high school, a well-known high school program, um, how was college different or what advice might you give to a prospective, you know, high school journalist that wants to go and start writing again in college? It's different because, I mean, there's a lot more precision and there's a lot more focus on speed. At the college newspaper, it's very much more similar to real newspapers where, you know, the the speed of the article is super important. Your social media presence and the way you spread the story to readers is important because it's not just about print. And I, I would say that 
you have to really learn to be comfortable to go up to literally any person. Because in high school, it's a little different because the population is smaller and it's more likely you'll be interviewing people that you're comfortable with. In college, it is the most random people that you will have to interview. And so you have to become super confident in yourself as a journalist. And you just have to go up to them, be like, hi, I work for this newspaper and I need to interview you about this. And sometimes it's just random people on the street and you just have to be confident with that. Okay, so I'm going to let you, I'm going to hold you there for a minute and let me uh, get some background with you, Leah. Tell me a little bit about you as a journalist in high school. Oh, man. So I definitely didn't win any awards. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no. Um, I did do UIL. We, we, I went to school in Mesquite and um, my journalism teacher, Donna Morris, um, I think I was a freshman and she was like, hey, freshman in my journalism class who turns in their work and, you know, looks like you like this, come go do UIL. And I was like, yeah, sure. I'm not good at anything else. I'll try it. And I got like sixth place at an invitational meet. And I think maybe only eight kids were competing. (laughs) So (laughs) at first I was like, all right, I don't suck the most. So maybe I'll keep doing this. And then the next year I got into the newspaper staff and we still had a newspaper at the time, the captain's log. And I can't remember, remember a single story I wrote. Like I'm sure I wrote, I'm sure I wrote things. Um, I don't, I mean, it was, I still have those stored away, but they're just terrible. They're so bad. And I was, I was on the yearbook staff as well. And we, we took pictures with film cameras so oh my goodness yes yes, we had film so we would still have to oh gosh and those photos are terrible too man because i had to shoot football on the sidelines with a 35 millimeter and (laughs) no zoom lens it was ah it was terrible and and we had to we had to roll our own film in those days right yep and it was it was just i loved it though i loved I loved getting able to like the access it gave you. Like I got to be up in everyone's business all the time. It was really fun. <laughs> um, and honestly though, um, so Miss Morris really, um, she basically opened the door for me to experience what journalism could do, all the fun things it could do. But then when I got into college and I started, and I got on my college paper, then I was like, man, I could really do something with this. And this is where, this is where change like this is like the fuel for change and you know, the oils of democracy, this is where it happens. And yes. I got that real experience. Um, and yeah, there's nothing else in this world I'd rather do. So yeah. Now, where did you go to college? I went to Angelo state. So my, my undergrad degree and it was a great school for kids who, you know, um, I didn't even look at UT mainly because I knew I could, I could not afford it. And it's not really just the grades I think it was a self-confidence issue at the time. I felt like I wanted to be able to, I didn't want to be in debt, but I also wanted to succeed. And I felt like this D2 school that where you had small class sizes, I would have more access to programs, which I did. I had, I had more access to the student paper there, had such great professors. They gave incredible feedback. And so I just felt like it was a great um, like the D2 school environment it was just so, it was a great place to learn and get my feet wet. And then my master's at UNT, I was bored. Honestly, I wanted to learn more. So, yeah. <laughs> so then you're at that crossroads, which we all get to at some point where, you know, have our degree and we have to decide 
what direction were you we wanted to go in? Did you want to be a professional journalist? Did you start there? What happened after college? Um, I wanted to tell stories for a living. I had no idea what that looked like. And but I will say that like I knew what it was like to do the daily job of journalism and be in an environment where you don't get to make a lot of your own decisions and you don't really have as much autonomy. Um, and especially if you're in an environment in a, in a, where you feel constantly under threat of losing your job or something like that, that, that security weighed on me. And I went and visited a friend who taught high school journalism and I went to her classroom and I spent maybe an hour and I was like, this is it. This is what I want to do. <laughs> I'm on my podcast. I get to interview a lot of advisors and talk to a lot of first year advisors what uh, what advice would you give to someone just starting out as a teacher in journalism? Teacher in journalism. Oof. Uh, I was going to say first teacher in general, never let them see you sweat. Don't smile. <laughs> um, these are probably things you're like, what? Counterintuitive. Uh, just uh, a lot of my advice to teachers is like classroom management things about not letting kids don't ever – show kids what makes you laugh or makes you cry because then they'll push those buttons. They're, I mean, I love kids, but like they're kids, they'll do that. But journalism teacher, um, fight for every opportunity you can because journalism is the redheaded stepchild of every school, of every district in any state that I know of. Okay. And so you may, someone may correct me if I'm wrong. So you're, you're constantly having to validate your existence because you're an elective class so yes. that means you toot your own horn any chance you get. Your kid gets sixth place at an invitational meet, and there's only eight kids there. You better believe it's been <laughs> in a, P, a press release to the, the school district with a picture with a ready-to-go template on how you should um, you know, put that on the school website. Like anything and everything to, to show why high school journalism is important. And not just that. Like you, you should use the school district's goals – against them. When they say they want future ready learners, you show them how journalism program programs make, makes them future ready at Frisco ISD. Um, like the, my, my school district, they're, they're, they have incredible journalism programs that makes kids future ready. And um, that's just one of those things as teachers from the beginning, don't hide your work. Like be, be one of those teachers who advocates and fights for your, your kids' opportunities and shows them off any chance you get, like like your like your kids' photos. Show them to everyone. Um, I could go on, but I won't because. Yeah, <laughs> well, I think you're absolutely right. The more we can promote our kids, um, the more it's going to keep our programs viable. So I'm I'm I agree with that 100. percent Well, I know you were the 2016 JEA Rising Star, and you're still the JEA State Director uh, currently. Correct? Yes. What does a state director do for Texas? Oh, I, I just write reports. That is literally what we were required to do. I'm being I'm being funny, but like, I mean, <laughs> yeah. but like literally, my yeah. requirement in the bylaws is write reports, uh, and it's not even a lot of them. I just write two a year, two reports that goes with the national convention uh, timeline, um, and I manage the joy, the journalists of the year contest. Um, oh, okay. Right. So two kind of administrative tasks. I do a lot of administrative tasks. I don't love those, um, but I do them because I, then I get to do the fun stuff. So the advocating for new voices legislation was really fun. Um, that, that's not my job description. I just like to do it. Um, 
to help kind of connect mentors and mentees. Um, I just serve as a voice on the board. So whenever the board has to make some hard decisions, um, we, I'm just kind of help kind of give wisdom wherever I can find it. Um, things like that. Um, I kind of help recruit keynote speakers for the fall fiesta. I help fall fiesta stuff. We just, there's a lot of service oriented stuff, um, that we do. Well, now you, you mentioned new voices and that actually was my next little area about you. Tell me about your involvement with the new voices movement in Texas. Yeah. So I want to say it was a year ago, like in June that this was basically like, um, came to my attention. So it's very recent that they, we are trying to start a new voices campaign after some student activists at Prosper high school faced some censorship issues. And yes, so we, uh, we kind of, um, helped them help jump on board and help support them. So I was kind of like an advisor liaison and a point of contact between the national organization and state people and some advisors. So I helped some of the student activists who did everything. I did very little. They told me where to show up and I went there. Um, so let me just stress that. And like, like it was, it was very student led grassroots, not a nonpartisan uh, movement. And so I, I went and testified and I did that twice and so it was very educational for me. I wish it were more so for our uh, lawmakers, but I think it was at least they know what it is now. So now when the 2021 session comes up, they'll at least have heard about it and um, we can actually have a conversation about it. How, how close are you to getting something passed and what's kind of the road to get there? So both of them went to committee. One was passed out of committee and the other was not voted on by the committee. So the fact that it was they both got hearings in the committee means that um, the next time around, they the discussion hopefully will be one where we can push it forward without too many um, lack of education barriers because that's what it was. The problem with passing new voices through these kinds of places are that people don't realize students lack their first amendment rights as it, as it pertains to the student press. They think that kids have their first full first amendment rights, uh, or they think that student journalism is propaganda, which it isn't. Um, so, so it's, there's a, there's just a lot of, uh, education that needs to happen before 2021. And then we just have to hit the ground running come January. (laughs) Okay, well, great. That's fantastic. And um, your story is amazing. But now it's time we need to uh, start moving your two stories together. You both are tremendous scholastic journalists and journalist advisor here. But um, Neelam, are you there? Yes. Okay, here we go. So, and this is to both of you, really. Before 2019, had you two ever met? No. I didn't even know about her, like, I didn't know her existence. <laughs> yeah, um, I had heard Neelam's name, because um, I do judging for certain contests, and I'm just, my kids were in contests as well, so I would, like, you know, when you win everything, your name kind of, kind of <laughs> circulated around. I'm kidding, but, like, but no, not really. When you, when you excel at a lot of things, and your name is just out there. So she had some name visibility, but it was, I could not put a face to it. Right. Like I, I got to go and 
hang out for a couple days with Alyssa and the Lions staff that fall. And I met Neela men and I, you know, I, I'm really, when I started, uh, in scholastic publications, I really was an English teacher who liked to teach people to write. And so writing has always been a big part of my yearbook focus. And it was very clear as I read many of Neelam's pieces, what a, what a exceptional high school journalist she was. So I was aware of her and I was, and I knew some of her classmates who also had gone off to UT so I was a little bit, a little bit aware of what was going on, and I know you'd, you'd gone off to UT, and so let's kind of pick up the story there. Um, you got on the newspaper and were doing quite well. When did you begin to notice that everything was not quite right with your health? Um, so I had actually come back for winter break. So my first semester had ended, and it was about a week or a week and a half before I was going to go back to Austin. And I noticed that my eyesight was kind of blurry. And I thought that it was because I had watched too much TV over the day. (laughs) But um, it it got to a point where I actually like couldn't see road signs while I was driving. So I decided that because I had 20-20 vision for the most part. So I decided to go to the doctor and the blood draw revealed that the creatinine, which is the, it measures your kidney function, was pretty uh, not normal. And um, my mom is a doctor. And so when she got those results back, she decided to take my blood pressure at home and it was dangerously high, almost stroke high. So mm. she said, we're going to the hospital right now. And... That was, uh, that's when we headed to, we went to her hospital and they did a biopsy. I was there for about a week and I found out that I had a disease called IgA nephropathy, which is an autoimmune disease that attacks your kidneys. And we never knew that I had had it. I mean, they're looking back, you know, there were signs, but um, it came kind of from nowhere and it was, it had proceeded to such a point where I was on the edge of either having to start dialysis or getting a transplant. What was the timeline? When did they decide you needed to either get a transplant? When was that? Was it in January still? Yeah, it was, it was Jan. it was uh, mid January when I was still in the hospital. I was in the hospital for about five days. I would say from that moment, my mom decided to take me to the ER. And um, while I was there, they started my transplant education, which is something you have to do before you can get on the diseased donor list, which is what a lot of people try to do. Um, my, my actual kidney function was around, I think, 12 or 13% at the time. And so, uh, at, yeah, that is the moment where my doctor told me, you might have to start dialysis. You might need a transplant. But first, when I was discharged from the hospital, they decided to see if they could reverse any of the damage on my kidneys with steroids. So they put an incredibly high dose of steroids, prednisone specifically, if anyone knows what that is. It's a horrible drug with a lot of side effects. Yeah, there were a lot of bad side effects. I don't know if you want me to go into them, but it wasn't good. No. (laughs) So so you get on the transplant list and... How long does it usually take to get a kidney if you're just generally on the list? It can take anywhere from 
six months to two years to longer. It depends on, uh, there's different lists for different hospitals and different areas. And it's a super complex process. I didn't actually get on the list until maybe two or three weeks after I was discharged from the hospital because before they can put you on, they also have to do lots of blood tests and tests for your heart and things like that. So I had to go through all of those procedures before I was officially on the list. But yeah, I was officially on the list about three weeks later. And usually people don't get deceased kidneys until six months to two years, I think, at the hospital I was at. Right. So so here we are. You have this need. You're not going to be able to go back to school. We're kind of critically trying to figure it out. And Leah, how did how did you enter the story? So I was texting on a Tuesday in February with my THAE people. So Alyssa Berenger and Margie Raper and Cindy Todd. And um, I think that was everyone that was on it. And we were trying to figure out something with the joy contest, like just very tedious, like, Hey, can we get someone to one of our former students to video this thing talking about the scholarship winner, blah, blah, blah. And someone was like, Oh, ask Neelam, you know, and Alyssa was like, oh, Neelam's not doing so good. She needs a kidney, like, ASAP. And, of course, everyone was like, oh, my gosh, oh, that's so terrible. Like, is no one in their family a match? Is there, so, like, what's the process? Everyone in the chat was like, oh, let, like, can, like, how do you how do you find out about getting her a kidney? And so she sent us the, the form to fill out, and we, uh, I filled that out that night. And then I, um, yeah, I went and did my blood test on that Friday so it was it was pretty quick. So this is the very beginning of February. So so yeah, that's how I found out about it. Tell us a little bit about your thought process. I mean, you you didn't sounds like you didn't hesitate. You just decided to see if you could be a match. Yeah. Um, the only thought process was how do I do this? Um, what can what do I have to do to make this happen? Um, I, I researched it a lot. Yeah. I mean, I. Uh, I told Neelam this, and this is the metaphor I choose to use for this because it felt like this. I just felt like there was a kid drowning in the ocean, and I was the only one at the shore on the shore at the time. And I felt like, like I had to do, like I just reacted. I, I felt like there was this urgent need to help, and so I did. And um, you know, someone else could have come along at some point and helped. But I also thought that if everyone thought that way, that a kid might drown before you got to them. So I don't know. I really didn't actually think about it a lot. And that's obvious when I would go back and read my text messages with Alyssa. And she was like, but like, what about like your, what about your kid who needs a kid who might need a kidney? I have a four-year-old son. And, and I was like, oh yeah, I didn't think about that. Um, Like I just wasn't thinking about, um, you know, those, those kind of barriers. Um, uh, you know, initially at the beginning until people started bringing them up. And then, and then I did, but it wasn't a, it, it nothing really changed my, there was nothing in, at any point that made me doubt that this was the course of action I was going to take. So you saw a need and you reacted and you did everything you could to help. I mean, I know you're the kind of person that doesn't like any kind of like kudos, but uh, what an amazing thing to amazing selfless thing to do. It's a, uh, unbelievable. So, so how did the process go? So how did you find out you were a match? What was the timeline? Um, and then, and Neelam, you can jump in here anytime. How did you hear about what Leah was willing to do and how did that all come? How did you two come together? 
So the, the first Tuesday in February, I found out. The Friday, I went and did my uh, blood and urine test. The following Monday, I got the official, hey, your blood test, you're, you're a blood test match. So I was like, hooray. And then I was like, okay, now what? Um, the, the, I think the next, <laughs> um, the next Monday or so, um, we, had a, we had a Monday off. And I went and did a, the full day of testing where you have to do more blood tests. They had to do an EKG. Um, I don't know. I had to do all the scans and make sure everything was okay. And I did that. And then I and then I had to uh, pee in a jug for 24 hours while I was at school. Fun story for a different time. <laughs> so that I did that. And then I turned that. Basically, I turned that into LabCorp. And I, you know, I emailed the transplant coordinator. I was like, all right, I submitted it. When do I find out? And they told me the transplant committee was meeting the next day on a Wednesday, end of February. And I said, okay, email me as soon as you know. Like I said, I, this was very urgent. I felt like every day I could just imagine her kidney function declining. And I had read the effects of, side effects of the steroids and all of that. So I, I could imagine what she was going through. So all of those days I was just wanting, wanting it to get closer. So I found out that next Wednesday and I was going to like, I don't know, come up with a better way of telling her because the, the transplant when he said I could tell her. And I was like, oh, yikes. So I wrote her an email and I sent it to her. When did you first two meet in person? We met We met four days before the surgery. But um, yeah, so I sent her the email and then Neil and you were going to say something. Uh, yeah, I, that day was awesome. <laughs> um, getting that email, I actually didn't check my email. Miss um, Berenger told me to check my email because um, I had texted her about some food that I had made. And she said, have you checked your email? I said, no. So I went and checked it and I had this email from Leah and I, her name wasn't familiar. And I still remember reading it and crying and reading it again and reading it out loud. And it was just, you know, a really life-changing moment. And I will say from then on, I, I, my parents kept telling me, you know, she can change her mind. She has every right to, so don't get your hopes too high. Stay cautious, you know, you know, just be wary. And so I kind of, I limited my excitement, but it was, it was a really amazing moment. And, and, and you didn't meet until four days before the surgery. Yeah. Right. Which was, which was March 12th. So like it really, the end of February, it was, I mean, it was basically a week and a half later we met. And then four days after that, we had the surgery. So six weeks from, is from you were diagnosed. So from six weeks from when she was diagnosed to when she got the kidney. Wow. Unbelievable. And and what's the surgery like? Um, how long did it take? And what were some of the repercussions after the surgery? I know that we tried to record this podcast a couple times and there were some health issues, I think, with you, Leah, that we couldn't quite get it done. But how did it all go? Um, ours were, well, we were obviously at the same time. Hers was a little bit longer, I think. My surgery was three hours. Um, and it was this, it was slightly after Leah's. Um, I do. You, what do you remember? I remember Leah was out. <laughs> she was already out of the hospital by... Oh, yes. Oh, I was so, I think my surgery was like an hour and a half long and I was out the next day. Um, and don't ask me to remember anything from that next week. Don't really. Um, but yeah, I had. How much school did you miss? Um, I missed like seven or eight days. Um, 
Yeah. So it was, it, I mean, whatever. I, I did it during spring break. So I, I, I would have missed a lot more if I didn't do it during spring break. Um, I, I, I think I was in the hospital for a week after I had some issues right after the surgery and, um, I had to adjust and all of that. And I started, um, one of the things with transplant is your um, immune system is suppressed right afterward. So, um, I had to get my immune system suppressed, which they do through an IV fluid. And then you have to take medications to continue that suppression for the rest of your life. So I had to start adjusting to take the meds four times a day. Oh, also the other thing is, is with a kidney transplant, you have to drink a lot of water. So I had to start drinking like five or six liters a day because that's how much I was putting out. And I, and how much, since you're both journalists, how much have you written about this? And have you written any articles? Is there a blog? Um, just more of your writing about this whole uh, journey together. Yeah. So when I was sick before I knew about Leah, I wrote a short blog about how it had happened to me and how I felt. And I know that Leah read it before she had contacted me, but after she knew about me and had gotten tested, she says that solidified her position. But um, I wrote that blog. After surgery, I wrote another blog. And that was more about how I was recovering and dealing with everything, but also how lucky I was to not have to do dialysis and how just how quickly everything happened and how amazing that is. Um, and then apart from that, for me, I have been working on a few different pieces. Um, Leah? Um, yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think writing has helped me process this, like you said before, I didn't really think about it at all until maybe two weeks after I, I, the recovery. And then I, um, in my email, I wrote basically um, so, something inexplicable made me want to get tested. And, um, you know, as a writer, you can't write that something inexplicable made you do something because if you know, if I can't explicate my reasons why, how else is anyone going to understand? So I really wanted to write to help under help myself understand. Um, so yeah, I am writing something. Um, yeah, I'm writing something that is going to be published um, in the Dallas Morning News sometime. Um, I'm working with an incredible editor, Tom Wong, who is uh, really great at crafting narrative nonfiction stories. And so I'm working on that now, and uh, I don't know when it's coming out, but that's going to happen. And Neil and I, uh, the kidney thing brought us together, but we spend most of our time talking about writing and reading and all that. So it's kind of cool. Yeah, I hear you've kind of become a little bit of a mentor and a coach for Neilam as well. And vice versa, because I send her stuff and I'm like, what? how does this sound? And um, yeah, she's she's incredibly humble when it comes to like, her stuff. And she, you know, she's really, really good at finding the right words to invoke humor and feeling, which is hard to do. It's hard to have voice. It's hard to teach voice. So, um, yeah, it's just fun. Yeah. And I just want to add that, I mean, she has helped me so much in terms of writing. Um, she has inspired me, I think, to write a lot more about this than I would have, because a, a, a huge part of me wanted to just kind of try and forget about it and lock it away in this 
corner in my head. And, you know, it's much healthier to process things. And, you know, she's helping me do that through writing, which I really appreciate. And she is also very humble about all of her writing. Like, I have not said anything (laughs) that I can really take uh, credit for for helping her. So can we have your, is there an address, Neelam, for your blog uh, that listeners could connect to? Yeah, it's neelambora.wordpress.com. It's neelambora, that's just my full name. Yeah, why don't you spell it just so it's easy for people to find sure, it? Sure, it's N-E-E-L-A-M-B-O-H-R-A.wordpress.com. So tell me some of the things that you've learned this is for Leah throughout this whole process. What are, what are some of the things you're writing about? Um, yeah, so I will actually, I, I've discovered that, um, sometimes we, uh, as maybe adults, but also young kids, we want to feel like we have it all together and that we, um, we don't need anyone's help and that we've got it covered by ourselves. So we don't really ask for help especially like when we need it because we, we appear, we don't want to appear weak or, um, and I'll say the reason why is because people, people who need help, um, we tend to not ask them to take on projects. We tend to, um, minimalize their experience. We, um, and I'm speaking generally as a society. And so, people who struggle with mental illness um, is that I will even say that like people who suffer or have depression and anxiety, that conversation, if you have that out loud with people, it's, it's one of those that is refreshing to hear and refreshing to have, but also it scares people. Um, And so it's, it's one of those things that like, I, I feel, I feel confident that, the more we talk about those things, the more connected people will feel, and the less alone everyone will feel. Um, and I think that there are people who need help, uh, but they can still give help. And I think that's the point of my story is that, um, you know, I'm a person who doesn't like to admit she needs help sometimes, you know, but yes. I'm yes. still a person who loves to give it. And I wish the world would make it easier for people who need help could people who need help can also give it. Uh, So I think the one way to do that is to just normalize these conversations where we talk openly about these struggles. And then um, especially students um, who struggle so much with so many different things so that they can see that even though you're going through a lot, that doesn't mean that you can't still be a person who matters in society and, um, still help people. So, um, it's a very liberating, um, discovery that I've made. Um, also ask for help. Like, seriously, you're not, nobody is a hero or superhero or a saint or, a. um, that's another thing I've learned. Just, just normal people doing, doing good things when they can is, is something that I just, I want to, I want to find that, um, and tell those stories because, um, the world isn't all black and white. And, um, so yeah. Yeah, think of what a world it would be if people really were as selfless as you to to give and be there for someone who you didn't even know when the need arose. So I, I just think that's amazing. 
So how's your health? How's your health? I know we struggled there for a little bit. Yeah, well, I mean, I, um, yeah, well, one of it is I, I, I was just getting sick. I don't know if it was the cause of medication. I, I, was, I was basically, basically I threw up and tore my stitches and I had to go back in the hospital for a minute. But like that, I know that's kind of graphic, but that, and then just, I wasn't drinking enough water. I was, I was like, duh, you only have one kidney now, drink more water. Um, I needed to get more sleep, drink more water. I needed to eat better. I needed to, you know, watch these things. Cause before, um, I did, I, you know, I kind of just trucked along. Um, yeah. And I think it was a good way my body to tell me to, to smarten up and to pay attention. Um, yeah. And then, um, yeah, so I, I'm great now. Um, I'm fine. I don't really. There's no difference. I don't. I don't have to do anything like Neelam has to do. Her her health regimen is um, very restricted compared to mine. Well, that's good. That's good to hear. So Neelam, tell me a little bit about the state of your health and about going back to UT. Um. So the state of my health, like I said, is it's good. They're good so far, I would say. Um, I don't want to. I don't want to say anything that would jinx it. I guess because I mean, every day there is a fear that you know the kidney can reject you, and so I mean, you know, I've been trying to manage that and prioritize that so that doesn't happen. Um, but I'm really excited uh, to go back to UT. My doctors cleared me to do that, and. Um, I actually applied for the Texan again because I, I didn't think it would be, um, I think it would be pointless to go back and study journalism without actually practicing it. And so I applied to be a senior reporter and I actually got hired, which I'm very excited to do that. So I'll be reporting on UT student government this semester. And, Yay. <laughs> and um, I'm just really, really excited. I'm still going to have to come back every month for my monthly doctor's appointment. And I'm definitely going to have to manage all of the things. Uh, another thing is like um, germs. I can't really be around germs since I don't have an immune system, which will be hard on a college campus. As you know, they can be very germy. And so, yeah, yeah so I'll definitely have to be much more aware and like responsible in terms of those things. But I'm, I'm just so excited I get to do that at all. Absolutely. Well, Leah, any more final words uh, you'd like to say about this whole process? Um, I, I mean, I, the only thing I would say is that if I, I've said this, I think I said it to, to Neelam recently, and that's, um, you know, if I were to see her story posted on Facebook and scroll through, like, I don't, I don't know if I would have clicked on it and thought it was legitimate and applied to be a donor. But because I trusted, because I knew Alyssa and I trust yes. her, and so personal connections with people, um, and and that that's what really like I did not even I didn't question it um, online. We question everything and the legitimacy and the accuracy of everything, and so I really wish that there were more ways to connect the um, people who need kidneys to the people who have them. Um, I just wish that there was a way to do that. Um, because there are still so many people out there who need them and their stories are ones that are sadly not as happy as ours. Um, so yes. any way to protect, um, 
living donors would be wonderful. There is a bill that is sitting in that uh, subcommittee on health in Congress and um, that basically protect the rights of living donors um, and would prevent discrimination against them. And just things like that, little things like that um, could actually make a big difference. So um, I would just encourage anyone to, um, you know, apply. There's lots of different places to go be the match. Um, there's other, trans just look up like transplant clinics or transplant hospitals. So if it's something you're interested in, you should reach out. And I could tell you all the ugly bits that are not going to be on the podcast, but are so worth doing. Um, and not everyone's going to find a Neelum at the end of their kidney rainbow, but I did. And it was really great. And uh, yeah, that's it. I'm just going to add if it's okay. I, I just, you get, um, yes, Neelam, you get the fi you get the final word. You know, what would you like to say to <laughs> Leah? What would you like to say about the whole process? I uh, like what she said about finding your people. Um, I mean, donating an organ is a way to connect to someone that it's un, un incomparable. Um, yes. and, and I mean, it's just so lucky. I think that the person who donated their organ to me is someone that I share such a common interest with and that I can be friends with about things that aren't just kidney related. And that, and then I, I think it's amazing that we were strangers a year ago and now we are incredibly close and not just because of the surgery, but also because we're just people who work well together. And I just, I'm really happy that that's how it worked out. Absolutely. Well, thank you both so much for agreeing to share your story with, you know, with the journalism community and the world. I mean, what a what an encouragement I know it is to me. You both are so selfless and I know neither one of you had wanted wanted any kind of spotlight for any of this. You're just giving loving people who want to serve others and Think of everybody more highly than yourself. So thank you for sharing your story. And, and Leah, to you, um, what an example you are to all of us about diving in with love and care and sacrifice when there's no way you had to. So may we all be that kind of a selfless person with those around us. So thank you for showing us the way. And again, thanks both of you for sharing your story on your book chat with Jim. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Jim. Thank you.